Hello, and welcome to episode three of Dangerous Exponents, a COVID-19 podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman, and with me is my co-host on Dangerous Exponents, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hey, Jeff. Um, episode three is going to focus on vaccines, which are big, big, big in the news right now, and for good reason, maybe not even as big as they should be, as we'll get into in a moment. Uh, you can find all of our previous episodes all of our previous episodes, both of our previous episodes at DangerousExponents.com. You can find me on Twitter at Tennis Abstract and Carl at Carl Bialik. So please let us know what you think, especially if, if you think it's good. So let's jump right in. We have a lot to talk about with the vaccines, the, the science, the politics, the economics. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a huge topic and we probably won't get to everything. But this has all happened really fast. I mean, it, Maybe that's not quite right to say the the scientific development has been going on for almost a year now, but a lot of the developments recently, the the approval in various countries and getting the vaccine out and getting logistics scaled up and, and people actually getting jabs has happened just in the last couple of days. So so things are moving fast, at least in some regards. And Carl, this is before we get into the, the science and the details of, of these vaccines, this is a... a this is a huge development for the whole world. We can't have dancing in the streets because we are in the middle of a pandemic with, with, a, with a virus that this is all about. But I feel like people should be more excited. I mean, this is, this is the light at the end of the tunnel is here. This is a huge development. Is that, is that fair? Do you think that, that people aren't that excited? That in your, why do you think that is? Well, I want to answer that. But first, I'm wondering maybe because we probably couldn't have dancing with this dancing in the streets as we would in other circumstances when there's really good news maybe people are really excited do we know for sure i mean one one piece of uh survey data that seemed maybe like like a sign that people were pretty excited was that it seemed like more people were willing to take the vaccines than than were when they were more theoretical i guess it's not the same thing as dancing so I, I would I would ask like how excited we know people are if we're going to accept yeah people really aren't as excited as they should be given that this is really good news and light at the end of the tunnel and potentially an end to this this altered world state we've been in I guess I'll give a few quick potential reasons one is that this has been projected for a while we've kind of seen the development coming at least for a few months it has been really fast but we've we've had some good news along the way so maybe it's been priced into people's happiness and we, we've heard people say if we can just get to a vaccine third quarter 2020 2021 excuse me things could be better so so maybe people kind of already knew it also in the u.s and places focused on the u.s overlapped a bit with election news so maybe that muted some of the uh excitement about this particular development that also relates to how politicized vaccines have been and how that may also have affected people's excitement that there was a lot of suspicion about any vaccine that was going to come uh, before the election now that's in this in-between period there should be a lot less but there still still could be some and then finally because so many countries have botched so many logistical aspects of the pandemic response and because there's this shortage and backlog and delays of when people are actually going to get the vaccines i think that may also have kept the dancing to more of like a light shuffle a light shuffle sounds about right uh yeah those are all valid points and and maybe part of it is the the, the failure of of there being some some big story to follow, and and some of the things you you bring up are are, are getting in the way of that story. The fact that it's so politicized, uh, the fact that it's the scientific development of a vaccine, the testing of a vaccine, isn't a very compelling story. We're not getting we're not getting daily updates on uh, on on how a trial is progressing the way we would about the Tour de France or something. Uh, it, it is tough to tell that story, and that's always part of the problem. So. All that said, we do have some some pretty amazing news to discuss in in the fact that these vaccines exist. They work. They've been tested to have um, have positive effects on immunity, at least for a short a short amount of time. Uh, 
they don't seem to have major side effects. I mean, there are there are some side effects that are people are finding that they're you know, they're sidelined for a day and they're really sore, things like that for for a few hours or for a day or something like that. So there's some side effects, but not not enough to 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 say this isn't still great news. So so we have these various numbers for from I guess there's there's four four main vaccines. We hear 90%, 94%, 70%. There, there was a Chinese vaccine that's been available for months now that I think was was running around 50%, which is incidentally about the same level of of, of immunity or effectiveness as the uh, the seasonal flu vaccine. So, Carl, let's talk about what those what those mean. When we when we find out that a vaccine is available, it's it's 90% effective. What does that number mean to someone who gets the vaccine? So my understanding is that your chance of getting an active case of coronavirus is reduced by that percentage. And the way to see it in these trials is if you have two groups of people who have signed up and volunteered to either get the vaccine or get a placebo, if let's say 100 in the group that got the placebo end up coming down with coronavirus and in the, uh, the vaccinated group, let's say only 10 do, then the vaccine appears to have prevented 90 cases. Is that your understanding? Something like that. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the difficulty is, is, is exposing people to the, to the virus, right? I mean, it's, it's not a matter of, uh, of giving the vaccine to a hundred people and then exposing all one, 100 out of a hundred to the virus. Is that right, Carl? Right. So I, I guess I should have cited the much larger number. So this would be in a case where the, let's say there are 10,000 people in each group, and then you just kind of wait. And one of the, the reasons that we have this vaccine now and not months ago is that you you do need time for people to just randomly, like any people, vaccinated, placebo vaccinated or neither, to get exposed to coronavirus and and run the risk of having gotten it and then see if the vaccine actually prevents that uh, one of the one of the footnotes to all this timeline and development process that is probably not why anyone chose to dance or not dance in the streets to the news but is kind of a bittersweet reason that we have the vaccines maybe weeks earlier than we would have otherwise is that we are in this massive wave especially in the in the US and a few other countries. So the random exposure to coronavirus happened faster in these trials than it would have happened otherwise. And we got meaningful results sooner. So I wanted to clarify that because the, the idea of, of just giving people a vaccine and then directly purposely exposing them to coronavirus is it, it's a concept that exists. I mean, the, the idea of it's of having a human challenge trial where you do exactly that. You give people the jab and you expose them to the virus and you see what happens. And that's, it's ethically questionable. I mean, people will disagree about how important it is. People will disagree about how risky it is to give a young, healthy person coronavirus. But this is something that was on the table maybe maybe six months ago. And as far as I know, it, it hasn't been something that's pursued. But it, Given given the stakes that we've had uh, hundreds of thousands of deaths in the U.S., that all these people are getting sick, that the the world has at least in part just ground to a halt for the better part of a year now. And Carl, do you think that this is something that the idea of a human challenge trial should have been taken more seriously earlier on and maybe gotten better data earlier in the process rather than just, just waiting for people to randomly be exposed? It's a tough question, and it's it's something that there's there's some history in science of scientists themselves being the the challenged and and something kind of heroic about that. Hey, this is my vaccine. I'm going to find out. I it it's so hard to to design a challenge trial that's going to give you all of the information you want because there. There, there's just going to be some selection bias. And even if you're randomly assigning 
if if you if it's a challenge trial, I guess you still want to randomly assign because you still want to see the difference between being vaccinated and not relative to the same exposure because you're you're doing some kind of artificial exposure, so you don't know exactly what effect it's going to produce, and it's hard to imagine having a lot of let's say 80 somethings and 70 somethings in that group if we're talking about ethical problems with young healthy people so um it, it can be pretty difficult to interpret and generalize uh but yeah for for something that has wreaked such global havoc you can see the ethical scales being different than for uh other potential uh, clinical trials so you mentioned selection bias, and I think that's absolutely true that if you did have a human cha challenge trial of the sort that I'm outlining, then selection bias is going to be a huge issue. You're not going to give a jab to a to an infirm 80-year-old and then purposely expose them to the virus. I mean, that that's ethically much shakier than the original outline of what I described. But some of this applies even to the trials we've had, doesn't it? I mean, to some extent... I mean, not to some extent, to, to all extent, pe the people who are uh, parts of these trials have volunteered. They're getting compensated for it, but they've, they've volunteered. Uh, is, is there, are there potential issues with the sample that, that we're drawing these conclusions from, given that we're not randomly sampling the entire population, and given that different parts of the population have so much different susceptibility to both the virus and, and how serious the, uh, the impact of the virus is? Yeah, it's definitely a concern. I think with the AstraZeneca trial, where it kind of unintentionally split into two arms and one arm, I uh, shouldn't use the word arm with vaccines, into two groups of two groups of each of which had two groups. And in one of these groups, the, uh, the the number of people over 55, I think, was very small. And so we don't really know, even though that group overall showed more effectiveness with different dosing, we don't know really if it works on the most vulnerable age groups. And I think a challenge for uh, a lot of these trials in the U.S. is that the last data I've seen on death rates among Black Americans and Latino Americans is uh, three times the death rate for white Americans. So they um, very important to have a vaccine that's been tested on a large enough sample from both those demographic groups. And I've seen specifically with black Americans a lot of data that, that their skepticism about uh, government testing and pharmaceutical testing for good historical reason is quite high and getting enough into trials was a challenge and a focus, at least according to one article on Science Magazine uh, that sort of tracked the vaccines are, uh, who is following the trials and, and reinforcing the importance of reaching out to those communities. But it, it certainly is significant, I think, in all clinical trials and a challenge, especially if you're working with certain clinical centers in, in parts of the country that don't have um, the same demographic distribution as the country overall. Yeah, that's a, a really tricky problem. And there, I mean, there's social justice concerns partly, and there's also just uh, scientific or statistical concerns as well. And I feel a lot more comfortable talking about the second one than, than the first one, but uh, they're certainly both valid. Anyway, the article you're referring to in Science Magazine, it, it, it talked about some of the, some of the pushback from both from communities and, and political figures that to ensure that these trials had a, uh, had a mix of different populations represented. And just to, to throw some numbers out there, since I, I felt the need to check them myself, um, at least the numbers I found in the U.S., the, the, the percentage of the U.S. that is African-American is about 13.5%. The percent that's Latino is about 17%. And two of the trials that I saw these numbers on, one of the trials discussed in that article, it was in Cincinnati. So they, so they tried to tailor the sample to the population of Cincinnati. And, and Cincinnati is, it has a higher percentage of, of black and Latino people than, than the country as a whole. So the, the trial had a higher percentage. Another trial had, I think, 9% black people and, and 16 or 17% Latino. So it, 
we're in the ballpark. I mean, it seems like it might have taken some work to to um, to attract people to be in the trials. It might have taken some political pushback to ensure that the the pharmaceutical companies included the right mix of people. But still, these are fairly small percentages, and it means that when we have results from a, a clinical trial with X thousand number of people involved, we have to fact take that uh, divide that by ten to to know what information we have on on African Americans. And then if we talk about other uh, other groups of people like Native Americans, that whose percentage is even smaller, we have you know less and less information. So I mean, the statistical question is if if we think that there are there are differences that are like genetic differences that are important. Um, should we be oversampling those populations? I mean, is is it not good enough to say thirteen you know, percent in the U.S. therefore thirteen percent in the trial because it's it's a smaller percentage? Should they be overrepresented in the trials? What do you think? Yeah, that's a great point. That there is always that option. Um, I think it's probably even at least as important to also think about subgroups with different. Um, underlying conditions, which can certainly overlap with demographic groups, age groups, racial groups. But, you know, knowing how the vaccine causes potential risk uh, for people with, with, let's say, heart conditions or uh, respiratory conditions, and then, you know, what their protection is relative to other people is really important. But there, there are so many different uh, kinds of conditions, not to mention combinations thereof, that you really would need to oversample. And, and this is where I think, well, well, these are important considerations for the trials before release. That also makes it so important to try to track as well as you can what happens once the vaccine is is out in the world. So we'll get to which groups get it first, but but among the people who you would expect to get a vaccine first in a pandemic are the people most vulnerable. And if it turns out that there weren't enough of them or the ones who in the trial or the ones who were weren't representative, hopefully we'd have the monitoring in place to find that out quickly and adjust course if needed, especially in the case where we do have a few different vaccines uh, to choose among and we might be able to to shift to one that, that turns out to to work better once it's actually introduced in the wild. Yeah, that's a really great point because when we're developing this sort of thing so fast, the actual rollout becomes part of the trial in a matter of speaking. I mean, it's not formally part of the trial, but it it is one giant trial and and as you point out, the some of the the people were most worried about uh, having potential side effects from the vaccine they might have been undersampled in the trial, but they'll be oversampled in the immediate rollout. I mean, I'm guessing there weren't a lot of 90-year-olds in the trial, uh, but there are going to be an awful lot of 90-year-olds getting the jab uh, very soon. At least we hope so. Um, so, yeah, we do want to talk about the how the rollout's going to work. We'll get to that in a little bit, but I want to talk a little bit more about some of the differences between the the vaccines. Uh, one one key difference, and I'm not sure where our knowledge is at with these things, but there's the issue of uh, of preventing an infection or preventing the the negative impact of an infection, and there's also the question of stopping transmission. So it, I think I have this right that the the AstraZeneca vaccine is believed to stop transmission, which seems huge, but we don't know that about the other vaccines, even if they are preventing the impact of, of, of getting the virus or keep, basically keeping people from getting sick. I mean, so Carl, first, I, I confirm that I have that right. And, and then let, let's talk about what, um, what different impact that would have on the spread of the pandemic, which has really, really been the big question since day one. It's going to continue to be as the vaccines start to roll out. Yeah, th- this is such a critical distinction and and part of the profile of vaccines. I'm surprised we're not hearing more about it. And the, um, my understanding is that initially we didn't really know if the AstraZeneca vaccine was preventing transmission as opposed to illness. And that now we we're seeing that the, the trial is doing more, um, more research and has found that it's blocking transmission 
but there's more we need to know and that the other trials we we, we know even less about. Uh, I think it's not so much that any particular, it, it's more about how the trial data is being collected than about how the vaccines are were, were being designed. And I mean, I, I guess I would have just naively assumed that while testing can sometimes be limited by capacity, that, that for these trials, there would be just constant testing. So we would catch all asymptomatic uh, cases or most asymptomatic cases as well. And potentially also, you know, tracking of, of all contacts and getting a sense of like, are the people who were, were vaccinated ever in a position where they might be passing along the vaccine, even if they didn't become ill. And clearly, for the implications of the, of the spread of this, of this illness, um, especially in the early stages of vaccination, when, you know, we're really hoping that the people vaccinated uh, don't pass it along to others around them, whether they're healthcare workers or residents in like a nursing home setting where, where everyone else is vulnerable, including the people who haven't yet been been vaccinated, uh, it would be really important to, to stop transmission and make the vaccines much more important and effective uh, as a tool in, in fighting the pandemic. So I think this just seems, uh, we're definitely both out of our depth here, at least I, I can speak for myself, but it seems like something that that could have been made a more important feature of the, the trials themselves, but maybe to do with historically how vaccines have been have been tested and evaluated in the past was not made quite as uh, central a role. Yeah, it, it sounds like that would be a pretty complicated trial to run. And I mean, I hope that people would have figured out how to do it in this context, but maybe it just wasn't really on the table. Um, I don't know. As you say, we're, we're, we're both out of our depth here. But continuing out of our depth, uh, there's this concept of herd immunity. And I think if we'd started doing this podcast earlier on in the pandemic, we would have done at least a full episode on the concept of herd immunity as it is. Maybe the opportunity has passed, but the, the usual number you hear is that herd immunity is achieved at 70%. There's this idea that when, when a certain amount of the population is immune, whether because they've had it or because they have a vaccine, or maybe there's some kind of natural immunity for some people, when you get to 70%, um, that effectively stops the spread of the virus, or at least stops it enough that it's not going to be a, a, a huge concern. And at various points, there was talk that certain countries or regions might be aiming for herd immunity, or they might accidentally reach it because the virus had gone out of control. But when you start talking about vaccines, then it's it's inducing herd immunity. I mean, we're never going to get 100% of people vaccinated for all sorts of reasons. But 70% is, is a reasonable target. And this relates back to the the various exponents we talked about in, in last week's episode, the R0 and, and RT, the rate of transmission at any given time. Um, you want to get that rate of transmission as low as possible. Obviously, it matters a great deal about whether people who are vaccinated can continue to spread the virus. And so, Carl, if, if we have these these let's let's just say hypothetically there's these two classes of of vaccines one that does stop the spread the other doesn't even if they're both stopping people from getting sick what implications does that have for for reaching herd immunity i mean if there's a if there's an a vaccine that doesn't stop spread that much i mean is is 70% still a good enough target Well, first of all, I, you know, 70% is like a good threshold number to aim for, but we could talk at length or just tell people to listen to the Exponent episode for all the reasons why there's a lot of noise around these things, a lot of variability. Um, I, I think we're just targeting as big of a number as we can get for, for any vaccine. For for one that doesn't prevent transmission, though, I guess the there's there could be this perverse effect where there's even more incentive, not just for public health or for us saying what we would want if we could could decide or what, what we think should happen, but, but for people themselves making their decisions about whether to get vaccinated, there's even more incentive to get a vaccine yourself. With the, with the notion of herd immunity and vaccines preventing transmission, there there's a bit of the tragedy of the commons that we talked about last time, where if 
if you get to 70%, the other 30% can be effectively immune. They're not really immune because the virus can still spread. It's just much harder for the virus to spread or for outbreaks to, to, to grow quickly. But they're effectively protected because of the decision of the other 70%, which could include twice, because these are pretty much all two-dose vaccines, twice being sick effectively and out of commission for a couple of days, which is a big de decision. Um, if the vaccine does not prevent transmission, but just prevents illness and only protects the person who's getting it, then that other 30% doesn't get that protection unless they go and get it themselves. So uh, yeah, I think you definitely aim for a bigger number, but also maybe it's slightly easier because there's, there's more in it for the people who are going to be the last holdouts. Yeah, and that's an important point that's tangential to what what you bring up is that when we're talking about this seventy percent, a lot of people when they think about the, the 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 percentage of the population that won't get vaccinated, they think about vaccine deniers, and that's that's certainly a problem and and, and an issue that contributes to the percent of the population that doesn't get it. But as with with, with any disease with a vaccine, there's going to be be people who don't get vaccinated for for other reasons, like for instance. Um, pregnant women are almost never considered in vaccine trials uh, and, and often don't get vaccines. That can extend to women who are, are breastfeeding um, or certain other vulnerable populations. Often children aren't vaccinated for certain things or, or infants below a certain age. So that eats up that 30% really fast. Uh, and, and, and it's important to get the positive externalities to those people who either can't or, or won't get vaccinated so that that's going to be a big issue with the rollout of of these vaccines because you know that partly I mean, I, i'm i'm digressing on digression here but um there's the factor that a huge percent of of nurses in the u.s and i mean around the world but have the numbers numbers for the u.s 75 percent of nurses in the u.s are women a large percentage of those are of childbearing age. Um, Three hundred thirty thousand of those, according to one one source we looked at, uh, are currently pregnant or breastfeeding. So we always think of of nurses as being near the very front of the line, but there's a lot of nurses who aren't going to get the vaccine at least soon. And I don't think we're in a position to to pull them off the hospital floor uh, just because we can't give them them the vaccine right now. So. Lots of things go into the, these numbers, whether we're, we're aiming for 70% or some other, some other target. So that's a, a, a good segue, I think, to talking about this idea of, of who's at the, at the front of the line. So, so Carl, let, let's dig into that. I think most people are, are agreed or at least accept the fact that, that the most vulnerable people, which in this case would be the very old, are getting the vaccine first. The people we've seen in the news who who've gotten the, the first jabs are are very old. The next step seems to be frontline workers, doctors, nurses, etc. And then things get messy. So so Carl, what 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 are these considerations that go into how how the queue is is lined up? I mean, what's what do we think is going to happen here? Yeah, I mean, I think it'll vary by country uh, and. It'll even vary by state and hospital system. I have a friend who's a doctor, and uh, he has spent some time treating COVID patients and asked him when he was going to get one. He's like, I don't know. I'm not going to be at the front of the line. It kind of depends on my hospital. You know, like the, the, these things remain unknown, even as we're already starting to, to vaccinate people with the Pfizer vaccine. I, I think even the question of should it go first to uh, people in not not just who are in their 80s and 90s, but who are living in settings with other people of very vulnerable ages, um, should they go first? Because the, the, I think in the US of nearly 300,000 deaths, 100,000 plus have been in settings like that. Uh, and the rates have been so much higher than for the general population. Or should it go to healthcare workers who themselves are quite vulnerable, who could spread it among themselves and to patients uh, who, who are being treated for things other than COVID, and who, from a from a sort of societally selfish point of view, we need healthy to, to treat people. Um, but then you mentioned other frontline workers, and that's a that's a designation that extends to many other professions outside of healthcare, but still, you know, providing some important in-person 
work that couldn't be done in a remote safe setting and uh, potentially could infect each other. There are other groups like people in nursing homes who live in group settings and are therefore more, more vulnerable. A lot of people in prisons have been infected, uh, people in psychiatric hospitals. There are work settings that are more vulnerable because there are massive uh, settings with with a lot of exchange of air and, and fluids like meat, meat processing plants. So there, there's, even if, even once you choose among those first couple of groups, I mean, the, the one other group we should talk about uh, that occasionally comes up as maybe being one of the first, but I think most countries aren't yet considering, is teachers. If teachers were vaccinated early, this would help alleviate some of the concerns about opening schools, which are so essential for child development and for childcare and for uh, parents to be able to work. And, and that's, a, that's another giant group in every country. Yeah, and I think in in one two or three minute answer, Carl, you you've illustrated a lot of the problems here, which are, you can make a really strong case for moving a lot of people up to the front of the line, and it, it's tough to even imagine the scale of what we're talking about. I mean, every almost every word in that in that answer was another ten or hundred thousand people, and granted, this is a big logistical operation that hopefully is being executed fairly well, but it's, that's still a lot. I mean, e- even at U.S. Army logistics standards, 100,000 uh, doses of, of, a, of a vaccine is a lot of vaccine. It's a lot of logistics. So uh, you, you alluded to some of the trade-off, trade-offs here that it's not just about vaccinating certain people. It isn't a matter of necessarily these people deserve it. These people should get it first. It's, um, it's also a matter of generating positive externalities for people who won't immediately get it. So, for example, maybe it's good that nurses get it early because they're in contact with COVID patients, but they're also in contact with people who, who don't have it, who maybe won't be immediately vac- vaccinated. So, thus, a nurse getting vaccinated generates positive externalities for those other people. One idea that I, I've, I've, I've heard, but not really a, a mainstream idea, and not one that I've heard recently, is the idea of, of of geographically concentrating the vaccine because if if you want to create positive externalities for people who aren't getting vaccinated, and you do have a finite number of of, of jabs to give at, at at an early step of the process like this, you could do that by saying you know let's let's focus our efforts in Baltimore, and we're not going to get everybody in Baltimore, but we can get to thirty percent or fifty percent or seventy percent in Baltimore really fast. Uh, compared to if we equally distribute them around the country. Uh, that would create positive externalities for a lot of people at a level that we couldn't do by just spreading the vaccine out in dribs and drabs at first around the country or, or around the world. Do you think that's a that's a valid direction to go? Is that something that we should be thinking about more? I definitely see the, the benefits in public health and economically and I think if, let's say, throughout this nine-month horror, one part of the country, one city, had consistently been taking the brunt of this, um, then then intervening there might might be feasible. I just think it's it's so politically untenable in in the U.S. to do something like that. Um, maybe in a smaller country where there has been more of this this concentration of risk, um, and you know it does bring to mind that we were seeing things like that happening or almost happening effectively early in the pandemic with different interventions where there were um, you know governors competing with each other and competing with the government to get to get at masks and PPE for medical workers, uh, ventilators, etc. And we we do have a system in the U.S. where y- you could imagine that kind of scenario where, like, you know, Baltimore was out in front and, and was negotiating s- separately. And th- it would also ease some of the logistical hurdles because we're now trying to, to get this thing, which has to be kept at a really low temperature, to distant points all across the country. Um, but, yeah, I think... I think we're not there now politically. I think we'd have to like lay the groundwork for something like that uh, to be popular. Just just because 
of the point, which I, I guess I haven't said explicitly, and I don't think you did, of if you give it all to, to Baltimore, or if, or if you make sure to get all of Baltimore, you're effectively taking away those early doses from elsewhere. And uh, that the difference could be months or half a year, not just a matter of, you know, we're going to get to everybody in the next month. It's just a matter of who gets it first. Yeah, I think that, that that's that's all fair. And I will willingly admit that, that any kind of geographic concentration is politically untenable. I mean, you make the good point that you could make the case if there if there were some very clear reason that a certain region should get it first. And maybe in authoritarian countries, we'll, we'll get an experiment of how this works. I mean, maybe in maybe in Turkmenistan, the, the government will ensure that the capital is it gets that kind of coverage first, and then they'll worry about the rest of the country. And we'll gain some knowledge from that. And it might not be might not have great outcomes for the rest of Turkmenistan, but we'll find out how that sort of thing works, which might be valuable in, in future pandemics. But it is always interesting to me how in certain parts of this question, people will say, we have to just follow the science. Let's follow the science and do what the science tells us. And then there are other questions where we kind of throw up our hands and say, it's politically untenable. Even if we should follow the science, we, I mean, we can't even really pursue this line of thinking. It's just, it's just not going to happen. But that's, that's probably a topic for another day. Uh, so, well, Jeff, so, just, you know, yeah. one thought on this is that the, in be, it, there's something specific about geography in the U.S. that I think is coming into play that makes it untenable wherever things don't that we should acknowledge. And and that's just how red and blue everything is. Like, I think that's a, that's an important factor. I think the other factor is if you think of, of other groups and how to rank them, like you'd make different cases, there's different considerations, but they're pretty different. Whereas ultimately with geographic concentration and scarcity of dosages, you'd have to choose. And how to justify one place um, is much harder there. Uh, may maybe that's too fine a distinction because I'm saying it's a close call in both cases, but it feels like in the second case, you'd basically be flipping a coin rather than winning an argument. I'm afraid that that's kind of what's going to happen with, with various essential groups as well. And that there's going to be the same kind of political influence that will lead to making these decisions. That, and I, I, you make a fair point that if you're deciding between, I don't know, let's just say teachers and meat processing plant workers, I mean, that's a decision that's going to have to be made, just like Baltimore versus Cincinnati's decision that would have to be made. Baltimore versus Cincinnati, I agree. It feels arbitrary. Whoever lost that would have a very good case that they've been cheated out of something. Um, maybe you could make a clearer argument between teachers and people who work at meat processing plants. But I mean, on the other hand, when it comes to that decision being made, whoever's making it at the top of the U.S. government is is going to be looking at a very powerful teachers union that has had some influence in uh, where schools are closed and where schools are open and other industries I'm, I'm not sure what the union situation is for, for for meat processing plants but other industries that might be equally important by some measures but don't have the same political power um, they might not they might be knocked down the line a little bit just because they they don't have the ear of the right politicians and to me that feels just as arbitrary and i don't know how to solve that problem i, I it, it's these are all political questions and this is those things are almost impossible to change in a short period of time but i think it's something important to keep in mind that when when you say we should act a certain way so that it's not arbitrary we're really just trading one type of arbitrary for another or another type of of political preferences that is probably not grounded in the science yeah definitely i i don't know if i totally would apply arbitrary but definitely political and and in a sense there's there's like acceptable politics by obscurity like if the decision ends up being made um in in that okay we know that california got a bunch and then this county got a bunch and then this hospital got a bunch and they made a decision like there's so much going on at so many levels it's harder to track ultimately political power and and economic power is going to drive a lot of who gets this first but and yeah, politics is, is not going to track science very often. So, so okay. Often when 
whether we're talking about the pandemic or something else, when when I find myself in a in a debate like this, where I'm thinking, okay, the uh, political preferences, possible corruption, um, all of these things are are making for an untenable situation. How do we how do we cut this knot and move forward? The solution is often some sort of deregulation, such as saying let let's take the decision making power at least somewhat away from the federal government, away from state governments, and try to put it as much in, in the hands of private actors, whether we're talking about individuals or, or hospitals or employers who, in this case, would want to, to vaccinate their employees. So apparently, at least in India, there, there's a, a market for, for black market vaccines. Uh, I'm sure this is happening around the world. People are going to potentially be traveling to other places where it's possible to get vaccinated for pay. Um, I think this is going to be an increasingly big issue where we'll have to decide. You know, NBA players don't aren't going to be at the t- at the front of the line, but I'm guessing they're going to figure out how to get vaccinated, and the NBA is going to figure out how to how to make that possible and get us on track for another basketball season. How how do you think about that? issue i mean should should there be an outlet for people who are willing to pay to get vaccinated now rather than having having the federal government essentially or state governments essentially decide what the order is going to be for all 300 million americans i see the appeal of letting the market decide but i and and i know the argument isn't necessarily decide entirely, but for <clears throat> for some subset of the vaccines, these, these were heavily subsidized by the governments in, in their development, bought by the government. And so I think there, there's like a fair case for the government deciding. Uh, government is, to my mind, much more likely to make decisions for the overall public good. I can I can see the argument of well if you let people if you if if you involve pricing then people will set their fair price and that will will cover their um, that that will be a fair reflection of how much it, it's worth to them but there are some people who can just pay a lot more and who are price indifferent and uh, who w- wouldn't particularly benefit anyone by by getting the vaccine sooner and then I mean we I think we just have to. Well, well, I think we we sometimes are sounding pejorative about politics and perception. I think perception is really important with the rollout of the vaccine, and that if if it feels like for the public good, and uh, not based on who can pay the most and the rich and powerful getting it first, that's going to be that's going to get much more buy-in from much more people, which is going to be really important for getting enough people to choose to get the vaccine. Because I think even the latest polls, which show higher percentages willing to take the vaccine than before in the U.S., still are not at the 70% that you mentioned for herd immunity. Yeah, th- this is a, a interesting paradox to me that and I, I realize this is, a, this is a complicated question and I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to, to caricature it a little bit. But on the one hand, we there are lots of people out there who want the vaccine. They want it now. They're willing to pay for it. And we're saying, nope, you got to wait your turn in line. On the other hand, there's this massive concern that there's millions of people who don't want it. We want them to have it. They they don't want it. We're going to somehow have to convince them or hopefully not force them. But in, in, in some countries, there will probably be force involved to get the vaccine. So it, it feels like there's a paradox in there that I'm not sure what what it means or, or or what we draw from that, but it, it's 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 interesting to me. You're talking about the issue of, of people who don't want the vaccine, which is a, a really substantial part of the population, at least if surveys are to be believed, and that raises another question with people who want to skip the line. I mean, if let's say I was a multimillionaire and I could make this happen somehow, I'm not going to do the world a lot of good by getting a vaccine ahead of schedule. I mean, I'm, I don't see a lot of people. There's not a lot of positive externalities. I don't influence a lot of people beyond the three listeners to this podcast. There's not a lot of benefit there. But some of the people who fall into that category um, do have a lot of influence. So let's say, let's say LeBron James wants to jump the line. Um, LeBron James publicly getting the vaccine 
probably has a lot of influence on some of the people who currently don't want to get the vaccine. We're going to see, okay, LeBron got it. He's okay. He thinks it's a good idea. Therefore, I will too. Um, it feels like those are one-off decisions, but I mean, is, is that something that, that should happen? That some level of influencers should be allowed to, to jump the line and, and take advantage of their influence? Well, I mean, I think the line doesn't exist yet. We don't know what the line is. And it would be, it would be reasonable to create a class, a very small one, you know, that the, of, of, let's say up to 50 or up to 100, who all not just get vaccinated, but do it in a very public way. Uh, I think that that would be reasonable, much in the same way that it would be reasonable to vaccinate all of Congress and all the White House staff and, um, you know, Biden's core team. And Obama has talked about how he would get vaccinated publicly and maybe he would do it with uh, the other recent ex-presidents, Bush and Clinton. Um, when we're talking about a couple hundred doses, maybe a thousand to cover the groups I just described, I mean, governors should probably be getting vaccinated, right? Like it wasn't it wasn't a good thing for any of the governments this year that uh, when their leaders had um, had coronavirus and certainly would 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 have both the influence potential and the potential of keeping stability during a, a international crisis. So I think when we're talking about those kinds of numbers, it's it's reasonable and there there are a lot of positive externalities. If it's just some random rich person I've never heard of. We don't even have to be that rich necessarily. I mean, I think we don't know what the pricing would be in the U.S., but I saw pretty low numbers in India. Yeah, eight dollars. Yeah. yeah. So, like, you know, that that could potentially be a, a giant group. Um, now, do some of them have good reason that nonetheless isn't one of the reasons that would otherwise get them the vaccine sooner? Yeah, probably. I can probably work really hard and come up with the reason why I should, although not really. I, I'm like you. I'm near the back of the line and I'm okay with that. But um, if we're talking about LeBron James and other like, you know, people in the category of the most well-known and respected people in the country, that seems like like a pretty big benefit. I'm surprised, frankly, that I haven't seen those groups explicitly mentioned as near the front. Like why why isn't Congress getting vaccinated? Maybe because it, it would have so much blowback and look, the powerful people get it first and uh, we just can't, we can't have that image. But um, it seems like an obvious group to, to, to get vaccinated pretty early and that there's a pretty strong case for it. I think you might be underestimating the, the number of people who should qualify as influencers for this purpose. Like, l let's say we... We accept the fact that there's millions of people who, who for the good of society, should get vaccinated but don't want to get vaccinated. Uh, some of them, sure, the most people are going to respond to Obama getting vaccinated or LeBron James getting vaccinated. You could come up with a, a few names on that list. But when we're talking about positive externalities, some of the other examples we've given... The positive externalities, while positive, are not that big. We might be talking about someone who, by getting vaccinated, helps 10 other people or five other people. And that's great, but it, it, it sets the bar pretty low. And, you know, I'm, I'm partly just, just offering this argument for the sake of argument, but why not, if you are thinking in terms of influencers, let's take that term literally. Why not have, have a program where anyone with 10,000 or more Instagram followers can get vaccinated if they do it publicly. I mean, essentially make it a PR campaign. I mean, it feels to me like the positive externalities of those vaccinations could be as great or greater than some of the, some of the tr other uh, people who are closer to the, the established front of the line that we're talking about. I mean, Carl, is this, is this crazy? Or, I mean, is this just the logical extension of what we're talking about here? It's creative. Uh, I think, you know, we're entering the realm of dystopian science fiction and like the the, the lengths people go to get to that 10,000th follower. Yeah, but, but Carl, Instagram, Instagram is here to stay. We can't just get rid of Instagram. It's the dystopia is here. 
I am not aware of Instagram as threshold for vaccination, which is really what, what puts it in on the top of the Hollywood script readers virtual pile. Hard to paint that image in 2020. Um, but no, I mean, I think that there are ways to get at what, like, yes, we, we could do something like that. And I think probably it would be overall to a benefit. And I think it wouldn't be proposed because it would be so initially so roundly mocked, even though it would probably overall have positive effects. I think there's ways of, I think that's why people are looking to LeBron, not just LeBron, but like sports stars generally um, as like the extreme versions of that. I, th I think if we're thinking of the more, yeah, there are a lot of other people who influence a lot more than 10 people, then we can think about professions. So uh, for instance, you know, I think religious leaders would be an obvious group. I think there'd be controversies potentially, but uh, if you could imagine like offering it to religious leaders who then do it on camera and share that with their congregation and urge them all to do the same when they have that opportunity, um, that could have incredible influence. And again, you could do all of them as a profession, the way we're, we're grouping different workers, or you could find the 50 most influential public uh, religious leaders. Uh, you know, other other community leaders who aren't directly in politics, like leaders of important nonprofits and so on, th those could all be, be viable ways to distribute. I think there there is a pleasing populist approach now of it not necessarily being all people who are already powerful and that that's the kind of um, the the tightrope that that people are walking is like trying to to show that this is available to people no matter their their power in society but in fact the powerful in society overlap quite a bit with the people who are influential and can potentially convince some of those people who could get the vaccine uh, but choose not to all fair points. I like that you you took my idea and said that it would be mocked, which is a polite way of mocking it, I think. Uh, but clearly, there's a lot more we could say about all these issues. It's going to be very interesting to see how the rollout works. I'm sure there will be some uh, some stumbling blocks that we, we don't even foresee now. There are some stumbling blocks we already foresee, like you mentioned, the, the necessity of, of keeping it, some of the vaccines very cold. Um, it's going to be tricky. And arranging this giant queue of people in every country and, and how they get the vaccine. I think there's, there's probably multiple future episodes on these topics. It will be interesting to see how around the world various black markets develop. And I'd love to, to talk more about that as we see more how it happens and the positive and negative impacts of that. So I mean, with any of these topics, we warned you from the beginning of the first episode that they spiral out of control, linked to other topics, and we could talk about it all day. But I think this is, this is good for our, our vaccines episode. We, we've talked about the vaccines themselves. We've talked a little bit about how the rollout's going to work and some of the ways that, that, that politics politicians have thought about it and maybe should be thinking about it differently. Or I think about it differently that politicians shouldn't be thinking about it differently. But let's call that good for today. Carl, thank you for joining me. Thank and you, Jeff. And that's been episode three of Dangerous Exponents. You can find our previous episodes, all two of them, at DangerousExponents.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Tennis Abstract. You can find Carl on Twitter at Carl Bialik, and maybe that will dredge him out of his Twitter silence. Uh, other than that, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.